Welcome to the Globig Podcast, where we talk to international expansion experts from around the world to make it faster and easier for you to take your business global. This Globig Podcast is brought to you by Clevermail. Clevermail's worldwide legal business addresses and virtual office solutions help you rapidly internationalize your business. Learn more at clevermail.com. Hello, I'm your host, Anka Corbin, the founder and CEO of Globig. Today, we'll be talking about European business expansion. You know, Europe is usually an important part of a company's growth strategy, but the complex regulatory and compliance environment can definitely be a challenge. And in this podcast, we'll cover setting up a business in different locations and then explore how to do business there. Our guest is Raghu Bhargava. Raghu is the CEO of Global Upside, and this is something I love. His mantra is, impossible is not in my vocabulary. Ah, that's awesome. And he's helped Global Upside clients successfully navigate some of the trickiest business environments, you know, such as the EU. His company, Global Upside, is a leader in helping companies transform their finance, accounting, and human resource functions. I'd like to give a warm welcome to you, Raghu, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Anke, and welcome everybody to hearing the podcast. Yeah, go ahead and tell us why, how did you get started in this? So, you know, what is your background and, and what was the inspiration for creating this company? Absolutely. So my background is uh, I was a Senior manager, auditor with Deloitte, went on to become controller CFO of public companies, has done some uh, consulting uh, for a few years, and have been at Global Upside since 2008. I am a co-founder back in 99 of Global Upside. And the reason Global Upside came about is that back in 99, if those of you who have exposure to the Silicon Valley, this place was super crazy. There was no availability of talent. If you had a pulse, you could get a job. It did not matter whether you knew your function (laughs) or not. So our take was how can we take some of the workload that exists in the valley and move it to a jurisdiction? We were focused on India, obviously, where there's a lot of availability of talent. It is one of the highest population of English-speaking personnel and highly educated personnel. So that's how it came about, and we were able to put it together in '99, and we've been in business since then, so almost 18 years now. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, let's let's jump in. I'm really I love this topic. I think this is a really important one, and it's something that I think so many companies get tripped up in, right? So you're ready to go. You're all excited about growing your company. You're thinking about the EU, and it's kind of like, all right, I've got this huge market. I'm going to be able to capitalize, but what are some tips that you have for really evaluating this market before they jump in? Well, you know, one of the things that has evolved over time is that it has become much easier to do business, not just locally, wherever you are based, headquartered, but globally. It is much easier to go into another country, much cheaper, um, and, and the costs and timelines have reduced significantly. But the way you have to always think about it is why are we going somewhere else? Um, Is there a business reason? Because if there is no business reason, let us not expand our footprint, at least not cross-border, because that can create complications. Yes, it is easier to go in, but it is very, very hard to come out. And um, because we provide services both in terms of helping companies go into new geographies, new markets, we also provide them service of sometimes having to wind down operations that didn't work out and is very extensive, very long and very expensive. So think about why you're going someplace and think about what is the market opportunity. Once you do that homework, then the rest of the answers are easy. Other than generating revenue, like what are some of the primary reasons that you see for companies expanding? Yeah, and, and um, you know, in this in this day and age, everything is very global. So some companies like Airbnb and Uber have done is they've expanded with maybe a little bit less respect to just the market opportunity, but more respect to 
first mover's advantage. So they are in all the major geographies, they capture the market, they are the brand, they are the people that are known for that service, and they get a lot of bang for their buck in the long term. But most companies are, like you mentioned, are going for revenue. And the other thing that a lot of people are going uh, looking for is talent, because there is a scarcity of talent in almost all geographies, so you have to look at other places. And then there is also the talent of what what kind of talent you need. So do you just need a software engineer? Do you need a Java engineer? Do you need, uh, you know, as you get into more specialized industries, you may look at uh, other more uh, well-known countries, more remote countries. The one thing that you have to worry about when you're looking for talent is what is, yes, there is, that particular type of talent available in that country because there's a lot of good education uh, going on in that country. But what is the volume of talent available? So in some of these Eastern Bloc countries, you can go in and hire two, three, four hundred people and you really maxed out. You could not grow beyond that. So then you have to think about where else do I need to go uh, to hire, say, the next 400 people that I need. Um, so that's, that's one of the challenges you face uh, expanding for R&D or engineering talent, things like that. And when you do that, do you have to set up a business entity or are there other ways that companies can do this? Are there kind of lighter footprints, if you will? So, yes, there are there are few options in terms of going into a foreign country, though it also depends on what your ultimate goal is. So if you were just gonna go in and, and say, check out Slovakia and say, hey, let me just establish a beachfront there with a two-person office and then we'll see what happens next year. And if things go well, we may expand. If things don't go well, we're just gonna pull out. It's just an experiment. In that case, uh, you know, you may want to go in uh, under the um, co-employment, the PEO type model, where the employees are on somebody else's payroll. And, and so, you know, if you have to terminate, you just have the cost of termination versus the wind down. But if you really know that you are committed to Slovakia or any other country for that matter, France, Germany, take a Western European country, then what you want to do is the right way to go in is to establish a legal entity, a subsidiary of the, say, the US company, or if you have a tax structure, maybe some other form, uh, some other ownership structure. but establish that up front so that as you start to attract the talent they are not looking at hey you are not really committed to this country you're just doing the PEO model but if you are have a subsidiary then they say yes okay I may not have heard of this company but I know they are committed they formed an entity they have put in some capital they've rented out office space they're doing all the right things that businesses would do anywhere when they're expanding yeah, it's, I know that certainly if the, if the competition's really high to get talent, some of that talent's going to be looking at whether you're really committed to that market or not, just for longevity's sake too, right? Absolutely. And, and uh, we talked a lot about the R&D structure and attracting talent, but you know, the, even when you're thinking of sales and, and, the, and the, let's say you hire a salesperson under the PEO model and he goes and tells his in, uh, customer that, oh, I'm just co-employed by some other company, but I work for this company in the U.S. or someplace else. They're like, what? You really don't even have a subsidiary here? How are you committed? How is this vendor of mine committed? Why should I buy from them? Mm -hmm. So those are, those are real business issues that not only apply when you're attracting talent to hire, but also when you're attracting customers to buy from you, even though you might be billing and collecting from the U.S. Uh, which is a much, which is a process that's discussed much later in the sales cycle, not on day one. Yeah, especially startups. I think they're somewhat risky for European companies to want to do business with. So the more committed, the more you know, really involved in a market they are, the more likely the other country is going to be in really embracing you. I I find that just a light footprint is is sometimes too much of a risk for a company to take to want to engage from a sales perspective. Have you seen that as well? 
Absolutely. We hear about those stories from the sales side of the business, of our client's business. And so when you look at some of our more, um, more established, more intelligent companies, they are collaborating with their sales teams and laying out a plan as to what is the expansion plan for, say, the next 12 months or nine months or whatever it is. And they are committed to establishing the right footprint with the right legal structure, the right uh, local requirements. Uh, because as you expand into these some of these countries, there are other requirements that you have not thought about that at least don't apply in the U.S. So, for example, in many of the Western European, Eastern European countries, there's a requirement to have a resident director. Somebody who is a resident of that country. Now, sometimes you can get by with having a resident director, uh, somebody who lives in one of the EU countries, if that country is also a member of the EU. But uh, and, and even though you're going to put directors from the U US on the board of that subsidiary, you need that resident director. There's a cost to it, and there is a high level of risk in appointing somebody to that position. So you don't want to take your junior level person and appoint them to the director because most times these directors have a lot of authority, a lot more than a director in the U.S. has. So you have to think about some of these other things, not just from a perception perspective, but from a reality back office. How do you manage to it? And these are things that you need to partner with the right firm to provide you. Oh, that's interesting. So the resident director is really more of a legal representative in that country, or is it the legal representative in the EU? It could be both, could be either. It just depends on which country you're talking about. So for example, a country like Norway allows an EU resident to be a resident director of a Norwegian company, mm -hmm. but Netherlands doesn't allow that. In Netherlands, you have to be a resident of Netherlands not of some other EU country. Oh, interesting. So even within the EU, you have some significant differences. Yes, absolutely. There are, there are differences from country to country, uh, and, and uh, you need to be educated uh, before you go in as to what your requirements are. Because even when you decide to set up shop there in the right manner, which is typically a one-time cost, your compliance costs, your ongoing costs can be significant because of these local requirements. And mm -hmm. as an example, Netherlands is a very high cost jurisdiction from the back office compliance perspective, whereas a country like UK, which almost resembles US, is a lower cost jurisdiction, even though the, the requirements are more than what you see in the US. So in some respects, I know a lot of U.S. companies especially, they look to oftentimes the U.K. as kind of that first step, thinking that that will make them compliant in other markets. And that sounds like that's not necessarily the case in that they need to look at country by country, even within the EU. Is that your advice? Absolutely. You cannot, it, this is not peanut butter. You cannot take that approach of if I spread it in UK, it'll work everywhere else in the EU. There are some advantages, no doubt, of being, no doubt of having one location within the EU, but not everything is the same. Okay. And what are, keep in mind, Brexit is coming up. Mm -hmm. Nobody really knows how it's all going to play out. So, not that I have any words of wisdom on that myself, but this is something that's going to play out sometime next year, starting next year, and we'll all have to see what it means. That's right. And that is a really big question mark, isn't it? Yeah. What are some of the other um, things? So you talked about resident directors. I'm, what are some of the other things that are somewhat different than maybe here in the U.S.? So, you know, from a, from a compliance perspective, there's a few things that you have to worry about which are very, very different than the U.S. For example, having a registered office. Uh, the government needs an address, uh, a physical address that they can, they or somebody else can send you official notices. There's data protection requirements. 
data privacy, data protection is very big in Europe. That's where it all started many, many moons ago. And it's, it's, there's been a little upheaval last year with the, with the rulings that came out of uh, EU where the safe harbor rules weren't valid anymore and it's still being played out. Um, and and as, as you know, in every country there is an income tax requirement. It applies everywhere in the world. But in most countries outside of the U.S., there is a statutory audit requirement. It is not an audit under the IFRS or GAAP rules or whatever you want to call them, but it is a statutory audit. So they look at different things. They have to report on different things. Uh, as an example, did you maintain your fixed assets ledger properly? And in the U.S., you will not report on it other than if there was a problem with it. But in many countries, you have to clearly identify and specify that you have to report on those items. And then there's also a thing called an annual report. So it's it's a uh, it's a compliance requirement where your your financials, possibly your tax return, are attached to a filing, and and goes and gets filed with the with the registrar of companies or the equivalent body. And keep in mind that. These documents a lot of times become a matter of public record. So even though you are a private company in the U.S., you don't publish your financials. Nobody knows how you're doing, good, bad, or ugly. But they know how your British subsidiary is doing because you have to file your annual statutory financial statements with the government. And you can go to the government's website and look up Global Upside and, and look up the financial statements of Global Upside UK as an example. And is that the same around the EU? Every country has a unique report required, or is there one for all of your activities? No, it is country specific. And so you would, if you were in 15 jurisdictions in the EU, you would have to file 15 reports, not one. Right. So even though the EU is one, it is not like it literally there's only one requirement. The rules vary from country to country. Even the VAT rate varies from country to country. Uh, can be as high as 25%. I think the lowest is uh, 15 or 18%. Uh, I don't have the exact number. But it, it a lot of things vary country by country. Yeah, that's pretty intimidating, I would imagine. Now, what do you recommend to your companies that are really first entering do they take one country and, and really optimize and understand that before going global, even though they might, from a competitive standpoint, have to start looking at going all into every country? Well, keep in mind, these expansions, even though they have become cheaper, are still plenty cash outlay and a lot of, uh, lot of uh, effort uh, on the company in terms of opening new subsidiaries or however they're expanding globally. So you kind of have to come up with a strategy as to how are you going to manage to that. Do you have the capital to do it? Do you have the manpower, the bandwidth in the management team uh, to do it? Because every time you open a subsidiary, the CEO has to sign a bunch of documents. Well, he's the CEO. There's only one of those guys. And so it takes a lot of time and effort. Having said that, uh, you know, Yes, many times, like I gave you the example of Airbnb or, or Uber, um, they they have the wherewithal because they're big enough and plenty of money in the bank and stuff to do that first movers advantage and they want to have that big bang and going to X number of countries. But most times, companies have limited resources. And so you kind of have to think about which is the top priority for you. Again, if you're going for sales, Look at where your customers are based. Where can you sell? Where can you actually capitalize on the local market? If you're going for R&D talent, uh, where is that place? Because you don't want to go into the wrong jurisdiction for the wrong reasons. Going to Slovakia, possibly to make a big sale, may be a bad answer. Going to um, some country where there is lack of the talent you need, uh, for R&D, these purposes may be a bad answer also because you're not going to get what you're looking for. Yeah, one of the 
things I'd love for you to give me a little bit of insight into is how are Western uh, versus Eastern European countries, like are there some commonalities between them or are they really different from each other? I'm more familiar with Western Europe and less familiar with Eastern. Yeah, and, and that's typically the case, right? because a lot of us have traveled to Western Europe but have never been to Eastern Europe. Heck, a few years ago, we couldn't even go there, right. uh, you know, kind of thing. Uh, but th there are, as the Eastern countries have come, as that whole East block has opened up for business, they are changing, they are adopting more to what we could call the Western culture, business environment, I should say. But they are still, in some respects, uh, the darker ages. The rules are a little bit more red tape. It takes a lot more effort sometimes to do things that uh, may take you less time in UK, as an example. So in Serbia, to open a bank account might take you three to five months. Uh, sometimes, yes, it can be done sooner, but a lot of times, a long time. In UK, you know, two, three weeks, you can get your bank account open. Uh, so there are differences because there are different requirements. But one of the things you have to worry about in this day and age is what are known as KYC and UBO requirements. Know your customer, KYC, and ultimate beneficial ownership, or UBO. Because what is happening is today, as we know, terrorism is very prevalent across the globe. And uh, money laundering is the other problem that we've, been, we've had for a very long time. So each government and in cooperation with other governments, what they've done is they put a lot of requirements around KYC and UBO. So in some countries, and we've all heard of Panama Papers, so in, like in Panama, and I know I'm not talking about Europe here, but in Panama, if your subsidiary, if you have a subsidiary, uh, it is almost impossible to open a bank account. So what our recommendation is, form the company, let, it, let the CEO or somebody like that own it, open your bank account, then transfer the ownership to the parent company to get around some of the rules from a practical perspective, not that you're trying to break the law. Uh, but these requirements have become so extensive. Uh, and you know, a few years ago, VCs would say, we're not gonna tell you who owns the fund and so on and so forth. But today they're all used to giving that information. They have documents already prepared. You need to give passport copies, driver's licenses, proof of residential address, things like that, um, to, to get subsidiaries set up, to get bank accounts open. And, 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 you and, and as you go east, it becomes a little harder versus west. So France, UK, Spain, those are easier countries. You go to Slovakia, Serbia, I mentioned, it can get harder. So what you might make up you know, for on cost by going somewhere in the Eastern Bloc, let's say, or Eastern European era countries, you may have uh, compensate with higher regulations and more red tape and, and just some more challenges, right? So it's, it's kind of a pros and cons and you just need to weigh them out. Yeah, there are, there are pros and cons of doing business anywhere. Okay? Why would you establish yourself in the Silicon Valley versus uh, Las Vegas? As, as an example, very different reasons that you go into either one of those two cities, areas. So similarly, um, you, you have pros and cons from a business perspective as well as from a compliance perspective. Though I have to say this, um, eventually don't let compliance bother you. If there's a business reason to do business in some country, some region, there's always compliance is just you know, byproduct, you just have to do it. And, and you can just um, figure it out, make it happen. Um, obviously, there are ways to manage that cost. Um, like I mentioned, resident directors, uh, as an example, if you have to hire a resident director, it can be um, tens of thousands of dollars a year. But if you are going to have uh, even 20, 30, 40, 50 people in a country, you most probably have somebody senior enough on your payroll that can be a resident director. You don't have to worry about that cost. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what so, they have partners like you for is to really navigate those um, requirements. 
Absolutely, you want the partner to be able to advise you um, from looking at, at the headcount, looking at your team in that country. Should you appoint somebody like that onto your resident director, onto the board, onto the board of your subsidiary or not? And and what does it mean overall? And some of it is, you know, risk and reward kind of concept, um, which obviously we've been talking about all along. Um, you know, where do you go and why do you go? So when you get there, what do you do and what you don't do? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I see a lot of companies making a mistake in is is contract employment and not really understanding employment law very well. Let's let's jump into employment law. That seems to be a really big minefield for a lot of companies. Oftentimes they do it, you know, they start out really on the wrong foot. So what are some of the differences and, and what are some of those things that companies do frequently that kind of will catch them and might be a problem for them? Yeah, so as you brought up the differences in the employment law, I don't know if you could tell, but I was laughing out loud because it was kind of like it is the one area we see the most common mistakes being made mm-hmm. by almost every company. And, and the employment, what we call employment offer, what we call employment at will in this country doesn't exist anywhere in the world. So the minute you leave the four corners of this country, you are looking at an employment contract, not an offer letter. It is governed by law. It is a contractual document. Uh, and I'll give you a great example of one of our clients who came to us last year. And what they had done is uh, they had sent the offer, U.S. offer letter to what they, they were going to hire a country manager, a very senior person in U.K., and about three weeks into it, a new CFO was brought in, and the CFO engaged with us. And what happened is this very experienced employee in UK had figured out that the US company did not know how employment works in UK. So the CFO was tracking all of the comments made by the potential employee in an Excel spreadsheet. Can you imagine having to track all comments in an Excel spreadsheet, how extensive that is? So by starting off on the wrong foot, you actually have given up that knowledge that you don't know it, which means he's going to try and take, he or she can take advantage of you. And you're really on the, on the losing side of this negotiation versus whether you get help from somebody like us or from a law firm, Educate yourself, go in with the right documents, and start off on the right foot. So the, the employment in every country, first of all, is very different from the U.S. and different from country to country. So you are required to commit to X number of vacation days that are part of the contract. You're required to commit to national holidays, whatever 10, 15, 20 that you're going to have to offer in that country you have to commit to it in the employment contract. You cannot just say, yeah, we'll publish a calendar once a year and we'll comply with it. And one of the things that's becoming very common in the U.S. right now is this uh, concept of no vacation or vacation, uh, all you can consume vacation till your manager approves it. Mm-hmm. If you offer that to somebody in Europe, they never have to come to work. Because... <laughs> You know, you gave them all you can eat. They're eating every single day. They're on vacation. <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh, my gosh, what a great job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there are other requirements, like, you know, you have to define the work day. When does it start? When does it end? What are the requirements to work? And if you don't say that you have to work, say, more than 40 hours from time to time, you cannot force them to work more than 40 hours. They will... They'll check out at whatever, five o'clock or something like that. And yes, I know that a lot of people do work a lot more hours than what their contract might say, but that's out of goodwill, not because you can make them work. Um, and, and so these, these issues are very, very different. 
And it's not just the employment contract and employment at will issue, but you know, you go into many countries as your headcount grows, you are subject to collective bargaining agreements. In, as an example, in Sweden, you want a collective bargaining bargaining agreement because then what you can do is negotiate with the union versus negotiating everything with every employee on an annual basis because that's how everything works in, in Sweden as an example. So knowing what, which country you're going to, knowing what are the um, unique requirements, business practices of that country is very important. So one of the more challenging countries is oftentimes Germany, at least that's what we hear. What are some some of the things that are somewhat different in Germany from, I mean, obviously the the at-will employment and the need for a contract, but how else might they be different? Just things that always surprise U.S. companies especially. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example of, of something we just ran into a couple months ago with, a, with one of our clients where we are providing them some services in about 40 different countries, about 3,000 different employees. And we cannot provide some of our services in Germany because the works council there, the part of the collective bargaining and all that stuff, the works council, the client could not get through the works council in terms of everything is going to be kosher according to their standard, the works council standard. Even though we had built all of the arguments with some help from some lawyers and stuff, to say, yes, we are complying with all of the requirements in Germany. Because like I was mentioning to you earlier, the data privacy, where is the information being stored on the web? So we actually had to create an instance of our product in Germany so that the information wasn't leaving the four, you know, the, the, we were fencing it in Germany and wasn't gonna get go anywhere else. Sometimes these things can still not be enough because it's the works council. They somehow think that, you know, hey, if your HR department shared service center is based in India, as an example, it's not an acceptable answer. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, yes, eventually you can sue them, but who wants to get into a lawsuit with, with your union? It doesn't really work that way very easily. No, absolutely. It's, it's never a win, winning situation, I can't imagine. What about some yeah. of the violations? So I know that they can be pretty extreme. So if you do, for example, hire someone that you say is a contractor, but then you treat them like an employee, what are some of the, what's the hot water look like when you get in that one? Yeah, so, you know, we're all very familiar with the employee slash contractor rules in the U.S. Hopefully we are. Um, and, you know, how you can and cannot treat, you know, there's a 20-point checklist that many states have accepted that hey, if you pass the 20-point checklist, you can treat the person one way or the other and things like that. It's really not any different in most countries. In fact, in many countries, people don't even want to come work for you as a contractor. Because it's kind of like you can't get a job. Is that why you're working as a contractor? So there's a lot of negativity around somebody being employed as a contractor. So they always want to work as employees. It is becoming a little bit more prevalent, but still not that common. And and um, the rules are almost the same in, in that respect. Uh, okay. Interesting. Now, what about the on-demand economy? You know, you've mentioned Uber a couple of times and a couple, there's certainly a lot of startups that are thinking that that's a, a fairly simple business model to take around the world. But I would imagine they're being confronted with that in some of these more litigious or more regulatory countries, right? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times we think about you know, we live here, we think about whatever is happening here should be happening everywhere in the world because it's the internet age. In fact, we are past the internet age. Everybody's connected. Everybody is a smartphone. It has all these apps. Uh, so why can we not all be on it? But, uh, and then, you know, sometimes the U.S. may be further ahead in some respects. Other times, 
some foreign country may be further ahead. So a great example of that is WhatsApp. And, and it, when it sold for $16 billion, uh, when it was bought by Facebook, people were like, who is this company? I've never heard of it. Right. But about, you know, great majority of their users were in Asia. And in Asia, WhatsApp is so common, not just for um, uh, personal, uh, you know, friend-to-friend communication, so to speak, but very common in uh, in business environments. So people create uh, groups. They can communicate to the whole team in one. A lot of team communications are happening that way and stuff. Uh, not just in a business environment, but even in government, even in the defense services, things like that, that you would think they would have their own proprietary or very controlled environments. So it really depends what you're talking about, where um, in this day and age, you might sometimes be very connected, look very similar, no matter where you are in the world, Uber is Uber, correct? You have the same app, it works, your US credit card gets charged, but not everything works like that in every uh, in every country. Um, and some countries won't even allow companies like Uber to operate. So you kind of have to know when you're going in, can you call an Uber in, in some city, possibly in Germany or something like that? Do they? Yeah. I mean, I think that certain areas you can, but what about the employment part of that? Because I know here they battle that those aren't really employees, but... I wonder how the European governments look at that kind of that on-demand economy and working part-time or working full-time for a company like that. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure how Uber is dealing with that, but I think a little bit of what is happening is that, as you know, there's a lot of lawsuits against Uber in the U.S. around being an employee versus contractor. And I think what other countries are doing is wait and see what the final judgment, the final answer is here, because then it becomes a little bit easier to push them in that particular direction, especially if you like the final answer here. Absolutely. So, yeah, so hiring employment law, big challenge. Are there any other areas that you want to make sure that our listeners are advised on when they go into a country to really pay attention, to become educated, and to make sure that they're compliant on? Yeah, so the one thing I talked about when we were talking about the employment issues was was the vacation and things like that, holidays. Um, but uh, the one, one other thing that you have to be very uh, aware of is the benefit requirements. So in the U.S., till the Affordable Care Act came into place, you really had no government or regulatory requirement to provide any benefits uh, by, by law. Uh, but in most countries, and they're very socialist countries, so there is a what are considered statutory benefits, benefits that by law you have to provide to every employee on day one. And, and, and you, you really have no way to get out of it. You have to comply with it. Uh, and then... Uh, depending on you know your name of you know, branding of the company and the size of the headcount and uh, you know a bunch of similar factors, what you may be required to do is to provide supplemental benefits. So they may have some insurance benefit that comes with the, by law, but a lot of people would like to get some additional say insurance benefits so instead of going to the government hospital they can go to a private doctor for their checkup or things like that so the the benefits are uh, very different they're statutory and supplemental and you have to know both and you have to cater to both properly depending on who you're trying to hire and you know stuff like that and in a lot of these countries well cash is important everywhere in the world let's not forget that ever but uh, People pay equal attention to the benefits because they're really looking at a package. They're not looking at just, oh, the company's paying me a lot of cash, so what do I care about the benefits? And remember, whatever vacation they have, they will take. And when the Europeans go on vacation, they actually go on vacation. The office is locked. Nobody should even come to work in August, as an example, in many of the Western European countries. 
France being a great example. They are out on the beach and they're not picking up the phone, they're not answering calls, nobody checking email, stuff like that. And a similar situation is coming up here at the end of this month where, you know, with the Christmas, New Year's, things like that, a lot of people are going to be off in the last one week of, of the year. Yeah, countries seem to shut down and we're not really used to that as, as a company. There always seem to be people that have to continue working and being there for, you know, like you said, August is pretty much cool. no business happening in France. Yeah. Now, what about companies that send someone from the U.S.? Now, they obviously need to then be compliant in that country, but do you find uh, some of the employees that they need to be compensated a little bit more due to maybe taxes or that some of the benefits are you know, not familiar and they need to keep some U.S. and the, the foreign countries' benefits? Or you know, how do you see that working? So, Anke, you should have started with the word expat. That's that's the word that you're looking for here, because the minute you talk about expats, what you do is you take that employee and you say, okay, if he's making $100,000 here, and I'm, I'm making a very broad comment, he's most probably going to make overall cost of moving him to some other country, employing him there, complying with all the requirements in that country, and here is going to be about 3 to 5x. So that $100,000 employee can cost you three hundred to $500,000, which is why only very large companies do it. And small companies do it, but only for a very, very short time. Or, uh, you know, they just go there and not get paid there. They just continue to get paid here for a very short time. Typically, the requirements for expats kick in uh, as you... Um, as you cross the threshold of 180 days um, over the last 12 months, uh, rolling 12 months. So the idea being that in six months, you've actually gained residency in a particular country, wherever you're working, which means you need to comply with the lo local laws, benefits, uh, payroll taxes, that kind of stuff, social taxes, whatever they might be. You have to comply with all of that. Now, obviously, if you take me from U.S. and put me on, say, the German payroll, now I'm paying taxes in Germany, but the way the U.S. law is, you have to pay taxes on your global income, so I'm paying taxes in the U.S. So if I pay 30% tax in Germany and 30% in the U.S., well, I've just lost 60% of my income. How am I going to make a living? And so then companies get into this business of grossing up those dollars, paying for moving costs, paying for kids' education when they're overseas, housing, and lots of other benefits and stuff. And so that increases the cost and increases the compliance requirements, both in the foreign country as well as in your uh, country of origin, that is called the U.S. The, the other thing you have to worry about when you send somebody overseas is what happens if things don't work out? So you're sending me to Germany for two years, and let's say a year from today, you decide you're going to shut down the German office. And maybe I don't want to come back. What happens then? Or maybe it's just not working out for me anymore. And so you say a year from now, you know, we're going to let you go. Well, what happens? Which rules apply to my termination? Is it the German rules? Is it the U.S. rules? Um, are you on the hook to bring me back? Uh, who's going to pay for that move? Things like that. So... There's another term I want to bring up that goes hand in hand with expat, which is a secondment letters, which basically what they are is you're agreeing with the employee before you move him that this is how this whole assignment is going to end. Not necessarily talking about termination of the employee, but more about if things don't work out and we have to bring you back, this is how that will play out. If things don't work out and you have to leave, this is how things are going to work out. German law, law may or may not be applicable. U.S. law may or may not be applicable. And some of it depends on what the employee and you can negotiate, things like that. Because if I want to go to Germany, I'm willing to give up that German law doesn't apply. Uh, or maybe I'm unwilling to give it up uh, if you pay me some kind of a big severance or whatever it is. So those are things that you have to worry about when you're sending people overseas. 
Yeah, you had mentioned um, should something not work out, and let's talk a little bit about termination and how that's really different as well. The most interesting conversation we have with clients is when we talk about uh, terminations in UK, there's a term called garden leave. And people like garden leave, what does that even mean? Uh, well, you are telling the employee that you are going to get terminated and I want you to go home and sit at home and not work. And during that because they are sitting at home and just looking at the garden, it's called garden leave. But uh, the idea is that uh, the termination in different countries have a very different meaning. Here, employment is at will. My boss could walk into my office and say, hey, Regu, this is not working out. You got to go now. And Okay. Well, whatever severance and things, I, may, I can get fired on the spot. Not in any other country. It is by law, by, by contract. So you had agreed that this is how the termination would happen. What would be the company's obligations at the point of termination? What are my obligations at the point of termination? For example, I may have a non-compete, which is not enforceable in, the, in, in California as an example, but in a foreign country, you can make me not work for a competitor of yours uh, for a period of time. If you can make that argument that I have, information that can harm your business if I went to work for a com competitor. Do they have to so, compensate them during that time or? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and, 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 uh, and so, um, and, and so the terminations and, and, you know, when you have works council, you have to go apply to them. Uh, you have to get their permission. They can object. They can put up roadblocks. When I was a CFO, we did a termination, a, a massive termination in, in France. And um, first, it took us about nine months to execute to it. Uh, well, finally, we got it all done and stuff. And about six months later, we went into an acquisition across the border in UK. And the Works Council came back and said, you misrepresented to us that you were doing this for financial reasons. Because, look, you just went out and bought another company. So you have money. So now what you need to do is reverse the termination and uh, hire everybody back. Can you oh. imagine that? I mean, no. you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> how does that even work? I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, these are things that are in a normal business from a U.S. perspective are unfathomable, but happens. That's what you're having to deal with and, and uh, the reality of life. Right. And, so and termination is very wow. hard. It is. It's really interesting. It's such a fascinating topic. So, I mean, ultimately, there's a lot to learn. Now, if someone wants to learn more about this, how do you recommend they really dive in and get more knowledgeable? Because obviously, these are really important topics. Well, you know, well, Google is a is a resource, but Google isn't quite the official resource for these legal contractual requirements. So what you have to think about it is how do you get the best information? And a lot of countries actually in this day and age have very good information on the government's website. Now that is official. You can, you can count on it that you've got good information. There's no advice there. It's the law that they're stating. Right. So then what you have to do is you have to engage with somebody who understands the laws of that country, has done business there, whether it's a local law firm or a partner like us or somebody like that, and who can actually help you navigate that. So, uh, so as an example, in Germany, it is very common when there is termination that the terminated employee is going to uh, file a lawsuit against the company. And the only idea behind that is how do I get more money, more severance? And so what you do is, sure, you can go to court and never have to pay them anything more if the court sides with you. But generally, as we all know, lawsuits are very expensive, very drawn out processes. And, and so what you want to do is you want to invite the, the lawyer and the employee, the lawyer of the employee and the employee, and say, let's sit down and talk about what will it take to drop the lawsuit. 
and how can we get rid of this and and um, go from there so that's one of the things uh, that you have to do is do your homework with qualified advisors. Absolutely. So for companies that want to learn a little bit more, give us some, um, give us the sense of how they can learn more about Global Upside and get some of the fantastic resources that you have certainly on this topic as well. Yeah, so if you go to globalupside.com, we obviously from time to time publish papers. We have a lot of, uh, we have a database of our old articles, things like that. Um, if you go to uh, news and events uh, under there, there is, uh, you know, various links. So you can do searches for, say, Germany as an example or France or whatever that is you're interested in. It It, it is a source of information. And yes, we are kind of sort of acting in an advisory capacity, but obviously you cannot take generic information that's on anybody's website and apply it to your situation. So eventually you do have to call people. And that's when you can do your basic research, understand the environment a little bit. And then you, when you call a service provider like ourselves, you are uh, you are acting much more intelligently. Uh, when things are being said to you, you understand where we might be coming from, what law we are quoting, uh, how we're trying to solve your particular uh, situation. So it always pays to do some research. And like I said, government websites, global upside, um, you know, there's, there's um, other service providers also, but, you know, make sure you're getting to a reliable source and then eventually do some research, but eventually call somebody and get some help. Absolutely. I think that's really great advice. So everyone, Raghu, I want to thank you so very much for joining us today. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for their support of all these great Globig podcasts. Make sure to tune in next time and then visit our website, globig.co, for your international business expansion resources and knowledge and connections to great companies like Global Upside. Thank you.